Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Riffs on Riffs, where we explore the collision of original and sample tracks and the artists who made them. I'm your host, Joe Watson. I'm here with my co-host, Toby Braswell. What's up, Toby? Man, I'm in a good mood. I'm in a, I'm in a great You're mood. You're always in a good mood. That's one of the things I appreciate about you. Oh, thank you, buddy. Thank you, buddy. Well, together on the show, we listen to the legendary tracks and the timeless, but sometimes not so well-known songs they sampled from. Toby, what do we got today? We are listening to the music from the legendary punk group called The Clash. And we have a special guest to help us with that endeavor. That's right. We normally do not have guests on the show, but... When this opportunity came along to speak with somebody who actually wrote a book about The Clash, we couldn't pass it up. So today we have author Randall Doan with us to discuss his book based around the historic Clash concert. The book is called Stealing All Transmissions, A Secret History of The Clash. But before we get to that, let's discuss some history about Clash and what made them successful. Let's do it. Man, the crowd had to be going nuts. Right? Really? Anytime that, yeah. Darling, you got to let me know. Should I stay or should I go? If you say that you are mine. Well, Tub, can you tell the good people what we are listening to? This song is called Should I Stay or Should I Go by The Clash. And I can't lie. See, prepping for this episode, it, it, it wasn't easy, Joe. It, it, really? it, was, it, it wasn't easy for me. I'm not going to lie. See, I'm, I'm not the biggest punk fan okay. or Clash fan, although I do appreciate the hits. Sure. Okay, the hits I know. Like this song right here, this is my jam. What I really like so is— So even though you said you weren't going to lie, you just lied to us? Well, should I stay or should I go now? <laughs> no, just, <laughs> you're here now. You're here, here now. Okay. What I really like is the story behind the music. And because punk music, you know, really through like a lot of research, it reminded me a lot about hip hop. Really? So like what, the way both genres kind of were birthed in rebellion and sort of anti-establishment and all that? Well, those are great points. But in addition to all of that you just said, it's also similar in the way that it made the creation of music accessible to the youth. Well, that is definitely something we can get into further with our special guest and local Clash expert. But first... Why don't you tell us a little bit more about The Clash? Absolutely. So Clash is an English rock band. Hold on, i got to stop band. here. Is it? Can we say Clash? I don't know. What do you, you want to say? Is it The Clash? Is it The Clash? Like, like The, the Ohio, Ohio State, State University? University? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Is it like Taco Tuesday? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, sit down, LeBron. Sit down. Okay, so The Clash... <laughs> is an English rock band composed of Joe Strummer, lead vocals and rhythm guitar, Mick Jones, lead guitar, Paul Simonon, bassist, and Topper Heaton, who was the drummer. So the band was formed in 1976 and helped build the punk music scene both in the U.K. and in the U.S. 
So I am always fascinated how bands are formed and how people get together. So there's usually an interesting story behind it. Bands are like superheroes joining forces like Justice League or the Avengers. Yeah, I'd rather be the Avengers, but yes, I I totally agree. Totally agree. (laughs) If those movies, those latest movies are any indication. Well, there's definitely an interesting story here. Mick Jones was in a band called London SS. And at the time, they were looking for some new bandmates. Now, have you ever conducted trials before at all, like with a band situation? Yeah. They're they're usually painful. Like, have you seen the tryouts for American Idol? Oh my god! And like, like the horrible people that think they have skills, and then, but then you know, like somebody amazing walks in, and you're like, oh, so yeah, that's kind of what it's like. Well, I can say that as being a coach in conducting tryouts, it can be exhausting. So telling a bunch of second graders to do sprint drills can be like herding cats. You're making our second graders run sprints, Kobe. Man. Yeah. Okay. Okay. (laughs) You just called me Kobe. I did. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. So a good thing Mick wasn't alone during these tryouts. His manager, Bernard Rose, was committed to helping out with the trials, and it turns out that he brought some friends with him. Oh, you mean these guys. All right, Tub, this is, this is not The Clash, so what do we have going on here? Well, we are listening to the band called The Sex Pistols. Uh-huh. I can tell by your face that you are a fan, Huge sir. fan. <laughs> Just like Kraftwerk. Love these guys. I oh, love it. So although this band only lasted two years, their influence lasted a lot longer, especially in the punk rock scene. Well, okay. I guess if you're a punk band, these are not bad guys to have around in the room when you're looking to fill out your own band. Well, that's what you would think. But normally, what happens is that you hire guys that you want in the band, and then you go on to make music. Well, yes, that is generally the point of a band. <laughs> are, you, are you implying something different happened here? Different is a word for it. So Paul Simonon and Terry Chimes both tried out as for vocalists and a drummer, respectively, and neither made the cut. Ooh, ouch. Okay, Topper Heaton was hired as a drummer, but then quit later on. It's a little hard having a band where you can't seem to keep the members in the band. Mm -hmm. Soon after that, London SS actually broke up, only recording one single and ever performing live. Dude, that's not a band. That's like a bad science experiment. This reminds me of a joke that I know. Oh, no. Here we go. (laughs) Yes. What do you call a band that ridicules people Mm -hmm. and has a hard time staying together? Oh, lay it on me. A disband. Really? Disband. Disband. You get it? Yeah, I get Disband. it. I get it. That's beautiful. I think we all get it. <laughs> all right, that's terrible. But it is a good segue because after London SS disbanded, <laughs> mm-hmm, Mick's manager wanted to help him build a new band and convinced him that Simonin was a guy that needed to be in that band. Now, I know what everybody's thinking. He, he tried out as a vocalist, and I'm sure he'd take over those duties with the new band, right? That's what you do. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought, too. The most interesting part about this whole thing is he actually needed to learn an instrument in two months. That's what they told him. Hey, you want to be in the band? Two months, learn a new instrument. So he's going to go like Stevie Nicks tambourine round? Is that what we're thinking here? I would definitely go with tambourine. That, that's what I, <laughs> either out of the recorder, because I know two songs right off the bat. Hot, Hot cross, cross buns, buns, baby. That's right. <laughs> but no, we're talking about him playing the bass guitar. Huh. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's hard. Well, maybe that would be good. two months to be good enough to play in the Sex Pistols. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, finally, the clash forms with Mick Jones, Simonin on bass, and Keith Laverne. Keith left the band before they recorded, but he is credited for convincing John Graham Mellor, a.k.a. Joe Strummer, 
to leave his old band, the 101ers, and join the Clash. So after a lackluster reaction from the crowd at some of their earlier gigs, they committed themselves to practicing, and apparently it all paid off because CBS Records signed the Clash to a record deal in January of 1977. And that was a big deal. They got they got paid. Yeah. They got paid nice. Well, and that, which is crazy, because keep in mind, at the time they got signed, they had only performed about like 30 gigs or so, so they must have impressed somebody. So let's hear some of Clash's iconic music and follow the winding path of influence they've had on many artists over the years. All right, well, let's start at the beginning with that first album from 1977, The Clash. <laughs> While it was their debut studio album, it was actually released as their second album here in the U.S., It reached number 12 in the UK and contained two singles. Let's listen to the first one. This is a song called White Riot. I think the message is clear. Message is clear. (laughs) So White Riot was written, that's a hard thing to say five times fast. (laughs) was written in 1976 after band members witnessed a riot at the Notting Hill Carnival. Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. Julie Roberts was there throwing haymakers? <laughs> no, no, no. No, she's just a girl standing in front of a boy, mm. asking him to love her. That's right. Love mm-hmm. that movie. Love it. But Clash member Joe Strummer did not love the effort put forth by working-class Brits in that Notting Hill riot, and that's essentially what White Riot is about. He thought they should be trying harder? <laughs> pretty much. It's oh, pretty much. That's funny. So Strubber will go on to say this about that song, and I quote, The only thing we're saying about the blacks is that they've got their problems and they're prepared to deal with them. But white men, they just ain't prepared to deal with them. So everything's too cozy. They've got stereos, drugs, hi-fis, cars. The poor blacks and the poor whites are in the same boat. Well, White Riot would have an impact on many bands that's been covered by groups from Audio Slave and Rage Against the Machine to the Dropkick Murphys. So let's take a listen to how it was used for some English electronic pioneers, Renegade Soundwave, off their 1990 debut album, Sound Clash. This is a song called The Phantom. Heard this track. Cool track. Mm hmm. Not bad. Well, Renegade Soundwave called themselves a byproduct of punk, saying that it forged the way that we think. Though the sound has nothing to do with it, Renegade Soundwave would inspire future electronic acts like Chemical Brothers. So we're actually starting to see the clash and the punk influence start to spread. Yep, and The Clash's next album and first release in the U.S. was 1978's Give Em Enough Rope. This marked the entrance of drummer Topper Heaton in the band, although he didn't get to display his full complement of skills until later albums. But let's take a listen to his work on the first single, Tommy Gun. So Strummer wrote Tommy Gun after being struck by the thought that how terrorists probably enjoy press coverage about their killings in the same way actors like the hype that surrounds their movies. Yeah, sadly, this issue hasn't gone away. We see the same thing with the coverage of mass shootings. 
Well, this was also an important song for The Clash, as it demonstrated that they were tackling real social issues, something they would continue to do throughout their career. It certainly paved the way for for other bands like Green Day to do the same thing in the punk genre. Let's take a listen to the four times Grammy nominated track from 2004, American Idiot. So, besides the socially conscious lyrics, you can certainly hear the musical connection to The Clash as well. But I want to bring up another interesting connection to The Clash's Give Em Enough Rope album. Hit me. First, let's take a listen to a fun little ditty about a famous drug bust. Julie's been working for the drug squad, and note, note, note to listeners, this is not about Big Jules. It's not? It's not. She would do no such thing. I thought she was part of the fuzz. Julie's been working for the drug squad. I, I gotta say, partner. Yeah, that was an interesting one. Yeah. I I wasn't expecting the piano right? right there. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that. You know who played piano on that track? If you tell me Duke Elton John, I'm gonna say something. Sir, Sir Elton John. Sir Elton John. No, but that's not a bad guess. It was uh, Alan Lanier, who was the rhythm guitarist and founding member of Blue Oyster Cult. So why do I feel more cowbell references <laughs> probably coming soon? All right, well, since you just took that away, let's uh, take a listen instead to one of my favorite Blue Oyster Cult jams. And it's timely with the recent release of Godzilla. Godzilla! King of the Monsters. He picks some of us and he throws it back down as he waves through the building toward the center of town. Oh, no. They say he's got to go. All right, well, let's get back to Clash. All right. That's an awesome song, but let's get back to Clash. So their third album, London Calling, features the famous photo of Paul Simonon smashing his Fender P bass. Well, you know who didn't play a P bass, but brought the P funk? Bootsy, baby. Okay, calm down over there. (laughs) Calm down. Now, while the Clash didn't venture into funk, they did start to explore more musical styles on London Calling. Let's take a listen to the reggae-tinged Rudy Can't Fail. I think this is before the movie even, right? More than likely. (laughs) More than likely. No, no, Rudy has... You know it's not about that, Rudy. Rudy failed a lot. Rudy failed a lot. (laughs) It is not about that, Rudy. Oh, no. Well, London Calling also has the Paul Simonon pen track, The Guns of Brixton. As he later told Basis Magazine, you know what? You don't get paid for designing posters or doing the clothes. You get paid for doing the songs. So let's hear Guns of Brixton. That's a great quote. (laughs) True that. Still got that vibe going on.
So now let's hear how Cypress Hill and Tim Armstrong from Rancid used Guns of Brixton on their 2004 track, What's Your Number? I knew I recognized it. It's cool. Yeah. So London Calling also contained a surprise hit with the song Train in Vain. Well, it was surprising in the sense anyway that it was written and recorded in a day and was actually meant to be a promotional song for the band on the flexi disc for the British rock magazine New Musical Express. Toby, you remember those like little plastic flexi discs you would get in your in your magazines and stuff? Or oh yeah, 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 I do. Now, now, now that you know, kids hear that word and think of disc golf, which disc by golf. the way is, Ugh. you know, who who saw that that coming? I how did that, not. How's that a thing? A frisbee golf. Frisbee like golf. Frol, frol, frol. Frol. I get yelled at for that <laughs> by my true disc golf fans. <laughs> Well, due to its late entry at the end of recording, Train in Vain was not even listed as a track in the first pressing of London Calling, and some folks thought it was a secret bonus track. So, let's give it a listen. Not a secret anymore. The secret's out. The secret's out. So Train in Vain would hit at number 23 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number 30 on the U.S. Dance Club song charts. So we're starting to see Clash's crossover appeal. Well, in 1996, Train in Vain would chart again, this time as part of the garbage hit, Stupid Girl. Let's hear that. took that drum part, which is a cool drum track. Mm-hmm. So, Stupid Girl was, was a hit on numerous charts, including adult top 40, hot dance music, club play, and modern and mainstream rock. Yeah, this is one of those times where I wonder if the band could have just played their own similar beat. There's, of course, subtle differences, but Train in Vain is similar to a bunch of songs I can think of off the top of my head. You say I give you a little mashup and let's see if you can guess. I was though. waiting for okay. it. Okay, yeah, I right, was waiting we for it. We'll start with Train Bane. And then that stupid girl. I'm going to let you guess this next one then. You know it? You know it in a second. Think beards, baby. Well, it's easy top. Oh, wow. Give me all your loving. Okay, well, I think we've talked about this one in the past episode. I think Gwen Stefani and her band. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Hella good. And one more. I know you'll get this last one. Mm-hmm. This is what I was thinking the whole time. Right? This is what I was thinking about. the Exactly. That's why I've been moonwalking in here. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, the beat is, it's a beat, and, you know, he's got some stylistic stuff going on, but it's like, why not just, you know, do your own thing? Anyway. Well, who, who knows? Who knows? So, regardless, it was great that Shirley Manson and Garbage gave props to The Clash on this. As we always say, clear your samples, people. Mm-hmm. Well, the cover of London Calling is noted as being one of the most iconic rock and roll pictures of all time and shows Simonon smashing his bass on stage. It's also the cover of the book written by our studio guest, Randall Doan. 
So I think we should take a little bit of time to pick the brain of someone who really knows The Clash. Somebody who knows them a lot more than we do. Exactly. Let's bring in the expert. All right. Let's bring in Mr. Randall Doan. Randall, you there? Hey, Joe. Hey, Toby. Hey. Hey. Good, man. How are you? I'm well. Happy to be here. So why don't you first tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do, and then we'll get into a little bit about how you got into The Clash. Well, I grew up in California, made my way to New York City, and then followed my now wife. Here <laughs> and, to, and then there's Cleveland. <laughs> and then there's Cleveland. <laughs> yeah, that was just about 20 years ago. Over the last few years, I've been a freelance writer and editor, do a whole bunch of work for clients helping grow their business through lead generation, white papers, and case studies, some PR work too. You know, but before then, yeah, I had the opportunity to write this book and that's why we're here to talk, right? Yeah, so give us a little background on, well, first give us the name of the book and where we can find it, and yeah, why you got into it in the first place. Name of the book is Stealing All Transmissions, The Secret History of the Clash, and you can pick that up at pmpress.org if you want to support independent publishers, and you can find it at Amazon or order it through your favorite local bookstore as well. Well, my training is in sociology, so I came to the research by way of the academy, but I always had a soft spot for rock and roll and punk, too, growing up in the San Joaquin Valley. My wife often suggests that when I tell her stories about high school, she thinks I must have time-traveled because it sounds like the 1950s to her <laughs> when I describe growing up in, uh, in Stockton. But, uh, but yeah, punk rock even made it to Stockton. Wow. And, yeah, it's um, been a shocker in those was. neck of the woods. It was. Well, yeah. the way you described it in the book, it seemed like uh, Stockton was like a, like a step for, uh, step for yeah. moms. It seemed like yeah. it was that kind of community. You know, kids all hair parted down the middle, and here, come, here comes this invasion of... Uh, of punk music and influence. So Talk to about speak. a sociology experiment. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much, right? Yeah, so when his name was Scott Fleur, I remember he moved to town and he had like this mini mohawk and it was just like, wow, what is this about? And what goes with it? You know, which boots, which shirts, and which music? And that's how I got turned on to the prospects of punk rock. And then, you know, years and years later, when I was uh, doing some research actually on the biological side of illegal file sharing, I found this file in WinMX, which was, you know, one of the things that came after Napster. We're going old school now. Oh, yeah, I like <laughs> he it. He said Napster. Wow, we yeah. have taken it back. Yeah. Go ahead. And the name of the file was something like The Clash, NYC, Palladium, WNEW, September 1979, .mp3. Hmm. And so I thought, okay— I know that the base mass allegedly occurred on September 21st, 1979, at the Palladium. The Clash had just released their second album, and that peaked at number 126 Mm -hmm. on the Billboard chart. So not a very successful record by most standards. Right. And WNEW was the last of the Freeform Rock stations in New York City. And at that point, Freeform Rock had two rules, no punk, no disco. Okay, And other bands, as part of the New Wave era, Joe Jackson, The Police, Elvis Costello, when they made their first visit to New York, they played the bottom line, which seats 400. Okay, So this is the Clash's second appearance in New York. They played the Palladium once in February. Now they've got two dates lined up in September. And so I'm thinking, okay, 
who had the chutzpah to think they could sell 6,000 tickets <laughs> to the class? Exactly. And why would they be broadcast live on WNEW? And it just, I just knew there must have been a great story there. And so I started to dig a little bit. And, uh, and the answer is in the book. And that's what we're here to talk about. So. So are you going to give us a little precursor of the answer? Are you going to make people read the book? Oh, no. We can talk about uh, what happens. I mean, for me, it was pretty amazing. I ended up tracking down Richard Neer, who wrote a book on FM radio, and he was the program director at WNEW at the time. He couldn't recall why the class ended up on the radio, but he did open up his Rolodex and put me in touch with Meg Griffin, and then she put me in touch with other folks. Yeah, it was great. I mean, just, you know, two-hour conversations with folks who were right there in the thick of it with WNEW and WPIX. And DJs, I mean, they were real curators then. They really had power, which I'm not quite sure they do now. And so it was about the DJs, it was about the writers, it was about crazy promoters like Wayne Forte, who decided that, you know, for him, the class were the equivalent of the Rolling Stones. And he knew that if he brought them to the United States, that he wasn't going to own the country. You know, he wasn't going to hit Omaha, Nebraska, or some other places in the Midwest. But they did play Cleveland, skipped Chicago, and, and played Cleveland on their first tour. I always thought that was a nice point of pride for Cleveland punks. But yeah, and so that's how the class fell in love with America and how America loved them back. So can you take us back to that sort of epic moment in time where, you know, the bass is smashed and the, the picture gets captured? It's, you know, it's obviously the cover of their album, it's the cover of your book, and give us a little bit of the, of the history of that moment. So the class play two nights at the Palladium. The excuse for the rationale for Paul smashing his bass that night varies over time. The baker, who writes the foreword to my book, he was the backline roadie for the class. The way he remembered it was that the press had most of the close seats to the stage at the Palladium, okay? And the band wasn't getting any response from them because they were in part the press. Paul had just looked a little upset, you know, for most of the gig, but the bakers didn't think that was anything new. He just had that. You know. He was just he was just mad all the time. Well, I don't want to say resting bitch face, but you know what I mean. <laughs> it's it's a punk thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's Baker standing there next to Penny Smith, and she wasn't even taking photos that night, but she did lift her camera because she just thought Paul looked a little strange. And all of a sudden, here comes this bass. And they were, you know, five, maybe six feet away from him. I mean, she was taking this with a wide-angle lens. So, you know, she captured a lot more than you might have imagined. And that's partly why it's a little bit out of focus, but that's also part of the character of the photo. It's mystique and its charm. I think the, the main thing, though, to think about this photo is the way the baker and Johnny Green set up the stage. They liked the clash to play really tight as if they were in a club. Okay, so they kept the curtains drawn out to keep the stage narrow. Mm -hmm. And so when Paul is this close to these guys off stage, he's probably actually blocked from most of the audience that might still be in their seats at the end of the show. And so as you can see in the photo with the lights toward the upper right, that's where the balcony was. And so those folks probably had the best angle to see Paul do this. And so the idea that, you know, thousands upon thousands of people claim they were at this show, right? I was there. And... (laughs) (laughs) You were five. (laughs) Yeah. I was an early adopter, Tom. (laughs) 
There couldn't have been, I would say, more than three or 400 people who actually saw the most iconic moment in rock. Were, were there more people the there or more people at, at like Len Barker's perfect game? Oh, Trying that's to... a good question. Yeah, t- get the local time. Because everybody was that one, that one too. <laughs> yeah, I've read some, you know, later interviews with Paul where he said he was, you know, akin to what you were saying, he was really frustrated because whether it was security or somebody was was telling people, hey, stay in your seats, don't get up and interact with the show. And, you know, he finally had a really nice instrument. And <laughs> to see him just like take that frustration out on it was, uh, that had to be a moment. Yeah, he was playing the Fender Precision bass. That was not a light bass. I mean, it, <laughs> it, it carried some punch, definitely. You know, the one thing I thought was was interesting, you mentioned the second album didn't do quite as well as they they wanted it to. And I, I just, you know, we talk about different groups from episode to episode and how many of the really successful ones really just came at the right time. You know, and the, with the first album that the Clash came out with, and it taking two years for it to actually be released here in the States, you know, because, you know, CBS, the record label, thought it was just too raw. I, I always thought that was just really interesting and, in, you know, how they went to the second album and a little bit more polished sound. I just think timing was such an important part of their success. I mean, what do you, do you agree with that? I agree with that in part, but also remember in New York City, they had bleaker bobs. And they also had distributors who had no concern for domestic release schedules, okay? So Bleaker Bobs was getting all sorts of copies of the import version of the album. And so when Wayne Forte calls up Bob and says, you know, class, what do you know? Uh, Wayne Forte's got this amazing voice. And he says, you know, I've sold... um, you know, 2,000 import copies or whatever the, the number was at that point. And the way Wayne figured, you know, okay, fine, 2,000 copies domestic, maybe one out of four of those people will show up. But he says 2,000 copies import, every single one of those people want to come and they'll bring a friend. So there were some real proselytizers in that regard in terms of, the, you know, building the class's popularity in New York. And I think similar things happened in San Francisco and L.A., but I only scratched the surface on that in the book's very New York-centric story. All right. I have one more question before we let you go. And again, I want to thank you for coming in and taking some time today. Punk certainly started as this anti-establishment, rebellious art form where the concern wasn't about being talented. In fact, a lot of times they were they didn't want to have any talent whatsoever and not know how to play their instruments because it was about it was about a lot everything that was against that. And so I find it interesting that The Clash became a pretty interesting and dynamic band with a pretty wide repertoire of styles that they were attacking and different musicianship that they were exploring. So I just wonder, you know, your thoughts on that and how that related to punk and post-punk and and sort of the evolution of all of that. I got to believe it had to do a lot with the fact that Topper Heaton was such an amazing drummer. Yeah, he was pretty good. Right. So if you don't have the drummer who can handle it, it's hard to take on a bunch of different styles. So much energy he had to have. I mean, seriously, to be drumming that fast, that hard, all the time, and that, that's, that's sick. And then to pull off some of that reggae stuff and, and the funkier things that they, that they allowed themselves to get into, I think, probably at his lead. In part, his lead, I mean, Mick was a big fan of dub. And also, remember that reggae and dub was what those guys listened to all the time in the punk clubs, because before punk had records, that's what Don Letts would be playing. 
at, you know, the key clubs in New York City. And then when the punk singles finally did come out and he started playing them in between the sets, the punks actually put the kibosh on that. They're like, no, 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 go back to reggae. It's like, you know, on stage, yeah. we're just turning up the treble in between, you know, give us the bass. So it's what we all want in the club. That's right. <laughs> and I think it's also just the healthy competition between Joe Strummer and Mick Jones, too. I think that drove a lot of it. And also... You know, while they do show some blues reference, I mean, their their key reference in terms of black music is it's clearly Jamaica, right? And I think that really informed their whole perspective on how they wanted to distance themselves from the classic rock guys who, of sure. course, you know, owed considerable debt to American and especially Delta and in part, some part, yeah, Chicago blues too. Yeah. Randall, we want to thank you so much for coming in today. Could you please give the book and your business one more plug? Sure, thank you. The name of the book is Stealing All Transmissions, A Secret History of the Clash. You can pick that up directly from the publisher at pmpress.org or your local bookshop. I am a copywriter and the owner of Cadence Editorial Services. And yeah, guys, thanks for having me on the show. Thanks again. Thanks for coming, man. Thank you. Let's move on now to The Clash's ambitious triple album, 1981's Sandinista. Over the course of the album's 36, 36 tracks, wow. the band really starts to explore diverse musical territory. So let's start with the first track, The Magnificent Seven, where they show their love for the burgeoning hip-hop scene. What do we have for entertainment? Getting a little funky now, I like it. The now the news has left to attention. Noon the landing of the dentist convention. Italian mobs. The bass is playing. Yeah. He playing. I was, uh, I forget who it was, but it was, uh, it was a guest player because the other guy was out on, like, cutting a movie or something. But, oh, really? Okay. Well, Strummer had this to say about their discovery of hip-hop. When we came to the U.S., Mick stumbled upon a music shop in Brooklyn that carried the music of Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, the Sugar Hill Gang. These groups were radically changing music, you think, and they changed everything for us. So Strummer freestyled the lyrics on the spot, and The Clash didn't even get credit they deserved for being pioneers in creating rap by a rock band. Yeah, a lot of folks kind of reference Debbie Harry's end rap at the end of Blondie's Rapture as being right. groundbreaking, but Magnificent Seven actually predated that recording by about six months. Wow, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was just watching a documentary, and they swear, they, they swear that Blondie was, it was a, the first know, one. Right, right, yeah. right. So Rapture was certainly a huge hit, reaching number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and number 33 on the R&B and hip-hop charts. Let's take a listen to that. Definitely listen. She's listening to some Sugar Hill Gang. Uh-huh. Well, another single from Sandinista has a decidedly Motown flavor in both the song's title and the musical style. Let's hear Hitsville, UK. I mean, yeah. That's just, I mean, that's yeah. Right? If, if I heard Stevie start singing right here, I wouldn't be surprised. That's not Stevie, though. No, it's not <laughs> Diana either. So, Hitsville UK was a nod to the burgeoning independent record scene in Britain. And 
interpolates the Hitsville, USA sound out of Detroit and the Supremes on their 1966 hit, You Can't Hurry Love. Let's hear that. Mm-hmm. I need love, love to ease my mind. I need to find, find someone to call my Gosh, such a sweet voice. Well, the Clash may have also been inspired by the godfather of punk himself, Iggy Pop, who also took inspirations from You Can't Hurry Love on his 1977 hit, Lust for Life. So this track was co-written by a cat named David Bowie. Hmm. You might have heard of him. David Bowie. Yeah. Hmm. He, who also plays piano, sings backing vocals, and produced the track. You, you remember? You kind of familiar with the name? I don't know. I'd have to, yeah. <laughs> Let's hear Lust for Life. Let's do it. Yeah. Iggy's character, man. I hope I'm still walking around shirtless in my 70s. <laughs> well, Hitsville, UK was a duet with Mick Jones's girlfriend at the time, Ellen Foley. Well, I believe she was the one asking Mr. Loaf to profess his eternal love before allowing him to reach home plate. Yes, Mr. Loaf, you are correct, sir. Let's hear Ellen Foley on that classic meatloaf song, Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Do we have to answer that question now? <laughs> sure how do. We, how long we been dating? <laughs> Man. I'm going to stop you before you get in more trouble with this one, buddy. <laughs> For the rest of your life? Wow. Well, all right. Well, apparently, Mick Jones was, was no meatloaf. Because, I mean, who is? Really? <laughs> right. Two out of three ain't bad, baby. <laughs> Two out of three ain't bad. Because he and Ellen eventually broke up, but like all tumultuous relationships, it provided the fodder for a great song. In this case, it's The Clash's 1982 hit, Should I Stay or Should I Go? Let's hear that. So this is the thing for me about this group. Yeah. So there are, even at this time, there are a ton of great, like, fantastic vocalists out there, right? And you're hearing other people sing, and they've got great voices, and then you get on the mic, and your voice is just okay, right? right? Your voice is just okay. But I love the fact that he's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going it. hard. It's going hard. I love that. I love that. Gives me hope, Tom. <laughs> hush. <laughs> hush. Well, this is one of the hits off of The Clash's Combat Rock album, which hit number two on the UK charts and number seven on the US charts. So they continue their political and social themes on tracks like Straight to Hell, which has lyrics about unemployment and the abandonment of the Vietnamese children who were fathered by American GIs. Let's hear that. Go straight to hell, boys. Go straight to hell, boys. 
I mean, this is definitely not punk. No. Cool. They were they were all over the place. Well, Straight to Hell was interpolated for MIA's 2007 track Paper Planes off her album Kala. Let's give it a listen. Oh, I could listen to this song for a while, buddy. It is a good track, but unfortunately, we are out of time. But we can't go without spinning one of the Clash's biggest hits, also from Combat Rock. What do you say we rock the Casbah one more time? Stop, you codger! I'm sorry, what? <laughs> you don't want to hear it? <laughs> no, I, I absolutely do. It's one of my favorite Clash tunes, and the only one of theirs to crack the top ten from the U.S., I was simply referring to the Mondegreen that Joe Strummer's friend heard instead the first time that Joe screamed, Rock the Casbah. No, okay, 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 gotcha, gotcha. Because I was about to Google the word codger, and I I don't think I would have liked the result. (laughs) Okay, let's listen to Rock the Casbah. My favorite part right here. Mm-hmm. Time some old space ghost. When I was a kid running around the living room, I'd always, you know, fake shoot somebody. Of course you would. Well, sir, I think we are out of time on this episode on All Things Clash. Thanks to our special guest, Randall Doan, and be sure to check out his book, Stealing All Transmissions, A Secret History of the Clash. Toby, can you tell the good people what we have lined up for our next episode? We're going to head into the mystic and see if maybe... We can give the devil a haircut. Oh, okay. That sounds exactly like something a jackass like me would attempt. <laughs> Ole! All right. Well, until then, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Rips on Rips. Huzzah. Keep listening. Rips on Rips is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to executive producers, Joan Andrews and Michael DeAloya. Producer, Julie Fink. Audio engineer, Eric Coltnow. You can listen to more episodes of Riffs on Riffs by finding us on iTunes, Stitcher, or visit evergreenpodcast.com. And don't forget, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review. It really helps. I'm your host, Joe Watson. And I'm your co-host, Toby Braswell. Thank you for listening to Riffs on Riffs. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. 
Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.